Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. quick before we get the show started, I want to share with you something that we're really excited about. Mike and I launched Principles of Program Design just about two years ago. And since then, we've been working really hard on building more and more content. And we're finally ready to release some of that great new stuff. We're having a updated version of our original online foundations course where we've added three new bonus chapters. We've also updated our live course. And we're going to be doing that in April at Scale of Strength in Massachusetts. We also have three brand new online courses, including our exercise coach course, where we teach you our belt system of how we progress and regress and coach exercises, as well as group mastery, where Mike shares his systems for how he implements his successful group fitness training programs up at Skill of Strength, as well as something called Primed, where we teach you about programming warmups And then in addition to that, we're also launching a virtual mentorship where we're going to work hands-on with a select handful of coaches and trainers working with you every week on how to develop the best systems and programs to build a successful career. And then in addition to that, we're putting together a free ebook as well as a supporting webinar where we're going to give you our top 10 tips to a successful career in the fitness industry. We're going to share with you our secrets and our systems that we use that have helped us open up our facilities, as well as speak around the world and work with some of the best athletes uh, out there. And so to get more information on all of this, go to principleswebinar.com and you can find out about all the new and exciting stuff. Now, let's get ready to get started with the show. And away we go. Here we are with the Principles of Performance podcast. We are on episode number 65. I'm your host, Eric Degatti, and I am flying solo today as my partner, Mike Perry, has uh, gone across the pond with one of his clients who's competing in the World Powerlifting Championship. So I'm going to fly solo. And uh, I, I, I hate to say that I don't want Mike to be here, but I'm very excited that I get to have this guest all to myself because I have tons and tons of questions. Um, so let me give you a quick introduction uh, to Michael Mullen. He's a clinically based athletic trainer who's got over 30 years of experience in training and rehab. He's, you know, he's the owner and a clinician at Integrative Rehab Center, uh, and he sees clients out of a studio in his home in, in, in Maine. He's a, a certified athletic trainer, registered uh, PTA uh, in California, and he's on the adjunct faculty at the University of New England, teaching in the master's program of athletic training. And he's a certified clinician through the Postural Restoration Institute, uh, PRI, which we're going to talk a little bit about. Uh, he specializes in treatment, rehab, and training of individuals that in, in his, of every level, every sport you can think of from NFL to NBA, MLB, NHL, US ski team, top 10 PGA golfers, gold medal athletes. Uh, he's worked with 
them. And he's also co-authored a book called Comprehensive Approach to Sports Injury Management um, and has been uh, published in multiple professional journals and mainstream publications from training and conditioning to shape to, to um, men's fitness, you name it. Um, and uh, I'm going to share his, make sure that I share all his links on his social media um, because he's one of those guys um, that I follow because there's constantly things he posts that kind of remind me that I don't know as much as I think I know. And he, he, he inspires me to want to go and learn more stuff. So I thank you for that, Michael. And I thank you for coming on the show. Goodness. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. Awesome. Thanks for yeah. the invitation and I appreciate the intro. Absolutely. You know, uh, Michael and I met at a conference a, a bunch of years ago. And so, you know, you know, Michael, we put together our kind of wish list of, of people that we wanted to talk to on, on here. I wanted to make sure you had, had you on here, but you know, let's, let's dive right into it. So, so we got this world that we live into where it's a kind of just do this quick fix kind of hacks and all that stuff to heal pain or improve performance or where you actually lean in. And this is one of the things I really love about your work is you lean into just how complex the human system is. And it's not that simple. And it's not as simple as jumping in an ice bath or, or doing this simple, you know, uh, foam rolling technique. Talk about that. Talk about how you kind of came to your system and thought process. Um, of course. So, so, so a few different things. One of the things I literally was just teaching at University of New England this morning for the doctor physical therapy program. So we were talking about a bunch of things as it relates to this as well. And uh, so it's an interesting segue, um, you know, in particular from, from those that are younger in the industry, some things that I've kind of learned over time. When I, when I graduated and started, you know, working in, in clinical settings and working with, with, with patients and, and clients and doing different things with them, you know, you're left with this body of knowledge that you're introduced with that allows you to be able to kind of get out into the world and do stuff, which is great kind of like sets you free to be able to do some things. But it was over the course of years of observation and listening and reading and taking a lot of courses, taking a lot of courses, spending time working with other professionals and, and, and observing other people doing work that I began to realize there's a lot more complexity to it than we certainly learned in school or that we learn for anything that allows us certifications or licensure to be able to go out and do stuff in the world. And so it's been through that journey of trying to understand how the human system works better that it has helped me to be able to have better, um, more exposure to different methodologies that has broadened my understanding of the human body. And so from a standpoint of the simple stuff, if someone just graduates school or learns some things to be able to kind of do the X's and O's to get out and, and, and do things with people, that's great. And that's going to be able to do some good things, but they're going to be hit with a lot of walls along the way, people that don't respond, people that uh, compensate and stack on other layers of issues on top of it. And it's through a, a, a deeper um, uh, education that's ongoing that allows you to be able to understand some of the more subtle nuances of what's happening, frankly, cortically, but also physiologically and physically that might allow you to be able to have more successes with people that are a little bit more challenging. I do wanna make things as simple as I possibly can for every client that I work with or any conversation I have with other professionals in an environment like this. I'm able to do that better the more I understand the complexity of the system. Does that make sense? So from a standpoint of like understanding the nuances and processing and, and the way that the biases of the body have a way to wanna orient things, the way that 
uh, an individual might have stacked on compensations because of their athletics, their activities, previous traumas and histories, the better I'm able to then break down things and put them into a simpler state based upon their individual needs. So it's through that educational process that allows me to be able to kind of um, refine my art, which it is, and my ability to be able to create some change that I'm looking for with a methodology of mine that is continuing to evolve 30 some odd years later. It's still changing. It's still growing. I'm still modifying some stuff in my mind in a great way as I continue to, to your point, you know, learn more and more. There's a word that, that you use that I, I, I sent this this morning uh, to, to the group with, with somebody else as well, too. You know, and, and I joke with people, it's like, I, I don't really know anything. You know what I mean? There's nothing that anybody really knows. And so I want to say that with some degree of, 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 of confidence, because there's things that we learn, there's things we believe, there's things that we find helpful, there's things that research supports and evidence suggests, you know what I mean? There's, there's things that are part of the process, but in terms of anybody feeling with such um, finality that they know things about the body is not accurate. And so I say that as kind of like a, uh, an out for people, you know, to not feel like, oh my gosh, I don't know enough. You understand plenty, do the best that you can, but appreciate, again, to your point, there's a whole lot more else out there that you can continue to kind of learn and grow upon. There's a lot of gold in, in what you just said. And, and from, you know, even how you convey the message and Einstein said, if you, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it enough. Right. Um, and then the, the second component is, that we're making best guesses based on what we know. I tell that to clients and, the, and I get really more comfortable telling that to clients the longer I do this, that I'm, I, I'm gonna give you some stuff, it's my best guess. And my best guess today is a way better than my best guess was five years, 10 years, 15 years ago. Um, and really, and I think what it boils down to, and, and Mike and I have had these discussions as we're starting up a kind of our own mentorship, is that there's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. Right. What you're talking about is wisdom. Like you've seen like, oh, I, you know, I know what the book says, but I've seen this guy or I've seen this person before. And I, I'm going to try this because it's maybe not the, the textbook way to do it. But I, I think I can get there through this because of a lot, some of a lot of other parts. Right. So talk a little bit about like that difference of acquiring wisdom versus knowledge and how it feeds into everything you just said. Oh, that's 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 great. Um Again, I'll use that class this morning of, of a bunch of, you know, DPT, uh, doctor of physical therapy students is um, for your boards, I want you to answer this, but that's not what I do. This is what I do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's elements of what we're taught and what need to be laid out in a way of education, but it doesn't come. That's the educational piece. That's the, to your point, the uh, introducing knowledge to people to allow them to then be able to be um Put their, uh, get them started in the field or get them started in an industry that they can then begin go and move on to acquire more experience. And then from that experience, and I even use these words today is, you know, success is not being successful with somebody or in a situation does not mean that it, you did everything right. Success means that you were successful with an ultimate goal. And some of that ultimate goal is going to be making mistakes. Doesn't mean you weren't successful. You were successful because you learned from that mistake and you were done and you'll never make that mistake again because you learned from it. Success and, and, and that wisdom piece comes from 
being able to say, to your point, I've seen this before. And you know what? I found that in this particular situation, actually, I do want to do this. It's not what I would normally do, but based upon this structure, this individual, uh, their presentation to me, I throw in a quick way risk reward piece. I'm like, hey, is it anything that could potentially go wrong if I give them to do this? No, they're pretty safe. Great. Then let's just try this and let's see where that leads us down that road. There's a, a, another word above and, beyond, in, above and beyond intuition is called an iterative sense. And iter, an iterative sense is weighing all factors in, which comes from the book stuff, which comes from experience stuff, which comes from mentors, which comes from the environment that you've been exposed to that allows you to have this iterative sense of, it's like a fisherman. He's kind of like, uh, no, we're actually going to go over there. And I don't know why, but we're going to go over there to fish. And it ends up being really successful just because of all of those scenarios were brought into that, that particular situation to allow them to be successful. And yeah, I mean, I'm proud of every single one of these gray hairs on my head because um, it has it has been through all of these years of my um, I guess say I'll, I'll say love and drive to get better and better at what I do because people entrust their bodies and their care to me. And I consider that a massive responsibility that I'm taking on. And so there's a lot of people out there that are checking their boxes and doing the same stuff all the time and, and aren't clinically curious. And that's going to get them stagnant and it's going to be reflective in their outcomes and it's going to be reflective in how busy they are. Um, but there is such a breadth of, of things that people can be exposed to that allow them to be able to create that, that uh, greater depth of wisdom that I feel is a really important and, and not enough in today's world drive. Um, and I'm not being critical. It's just observational. You know, when I was in my early career, mentors meant a lot to me. I'd spend time, my own time. You know what I mean? Saying, hey, can I watch you for the day? I just kind of follow you around and ask some questions. And, and that, that's, that is learning stuff from people who are kind of you know in the field who are doing things a certain way because they're applying some of the things that they've learned over the years that they create that ability to create the content uh, the, uh, the communication we don't see that as much anymore you know what i mean now it's like you know i'm on my i, I got these webinars i'm collecting this educational information uh great i took that course i've got this certification but people aren't necessarily diving in to understand it that much more anymore to my, to my, so it seems to me, you know, is this going to be on the test type of a mindset? Um, and so I encourage people that are listening just to kind of, you know, think about those people in your fields that you respect and that you like their work and, you know, consider saying, you know, who could I find to become a mentor for me that I could kind of go and observe and listen to their work and, and observe them for, for a day doing stuff. There are more and more mentorship programs, such as like what you're introducing with, with you and Mike, which is going to be awesome for people. Um, but there's also that, you know, get together with someone for a day and watching what they do. And then you sit down with them for lunch and, you know, maybe have coffee at the end of the, or tea at the end of the day or whatever, that can be profoundly more powerful. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things you want to take away from those engagements is the principles that they, that they utilize. And I talk about in mentors that as much as I learned very cool methods over, you know, 25 years that I still use today, the, the bigger thing I took away from those interactions with, with the mentors that I have and continue to have is their, 
the standard that they set and their expectation for themselves and the expectation for the people around them that, you know, just going through the motions of you're not going into, into Michael's clinic, right? And you're not going to get three sets of 10 of TKEs and clamshells, right? Because that's, that's the kind of easy, like almost type of, you know, Fred Flintstone at, at the uh, Rebel Company type of going about your job, right? So when we talk about like cool and sexy methods, you know, they're, they're great for clicks, their likes and attention, but you also stress to appreciate and embrace the perceived mundane, right? Habits, sim simple stuff is like walking, socializing, breathing. Why do you think we, we miss in rehab and performance, we miss and skip over these big rocks and, and, and we're constantly trying to go right to local and specialized approaches? Really interesting how you mentioned Fred Flintstone, who basically worked in a rock quarry and you go right into big rocks. Well, nice, nice connection there. Well played. And for those of you that don't know who Fred Flintstone is, that's you got you got to at least watch one episode of the Flintstones, right? Bam Bam was just like it was all about it. So um, one of the things I've changed a lot over the years and I've changed a lot in the last few years, frankly, uh, in terms of my thought processes and, and, and human human um, engagement, human experience, uh, what kind of, not, not what we're doing here, like on the deep level, although I could go there, but more like, you know, what does it mean to be able to be upright and moving in today's world? Well, what, what I feel has become more and more a challenge for people is the disconnection with, and let's use the word mundane, the basics. You know, the analogy I use today is like people know how to use their phone better than you know how to use their own body. People understand every app and feature of what's happening on here, but they don't know how to kind of move air through their system or how to, how to, how to change a behavior or how to move effectively, getting in and out of a chair or a car, or be able to move in an exercise class of some kind. And that to me is a sad direction that we as a human species have kind of gone. And it's not anybody's fault and it's not been done deliberately, but all of these, you know, again, to your point, cool, sexy things that are out there, the latest gadgets, the latest tech, the latest apps, the latest convenience things are, are, are making the human system more and more disconnected from what it is that we're supposed to be doing. Number one is being able to move freely. You know, people talk about like, oh, sitting's bad for you. Well, of course, sitting's not ideal for you, but it's less about the sitting and more the fact that we're not supposed to be doing that as much as we're doing it. We're forcing our structures into these environments that are not how we evolve and nor how we're supposed to be able to function and forcing people to make them adapt to that unfavorably, just to be clear. Number two, you know, people talk about, oh, walking is good for exercise. Get your 10,000 steps. But there's another element. Now we've got to kind of track it. Now we've got to keep an eye on it. Now we got to count it versus, can you do me a favor? And if you got 10 minutes, just go down the street, pay attention to what's happening out there, take in the smells, take in the sounds, feel the air on your face, you know, turn a wave to your neighbor as you go by, hear the sounds of the dog, like just become sensorily aware of, of life because the more we disconnect with those little pieces, the more uh, our autonomics become disconnected with ourselves. And I'm not being weird. There's that's the reality. You know, we, we don't have the ability to be able to um, get outside as easily anymore. People who are living in cities are more disconnected. I get that piece, but there's a reason why there's green spaces and there's parks and there's areas for people to go so that they can go and, 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 and be part of and feel and sense and, and be with 
the natural environment that we're supposed to be with, that the research is clear, helps reduce stress, helps to improve airflow, helps to improve our, our overall environment, let alone our personal environment. You know, being in contact, physical contact with nature and the earth actually creates changes in our physical structure from sleep to breathing to stress to airflow to blood flow. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of those, those basic things um, that, that drive for constantly looking for um, uh, the, uh, the newest show that I want to kind of binge watch, um, the, the, the newest video or YouTube uh, uh, series that I want to kind of watch, you know, fit, fit, filling our day with downtime and relaxation time with artificially stimulated elements versus you know, sit down and write a card or a letter to a friend you haven't for a while, or listen to some nice music, or, you know, move around on the floor and explore your body a little bit, put on some music, you know what I mean? Just doing stuff that brings you back to you that allows you to be able to have better um, understanding of this amazing thing that we have. Because in my mind, you know, if, if my life ended tomorrow, I'd be so much happier knowing all of these things that I felt and experienced and was part of spending time with my family, talking with friends, interacting and exchanging, exploring nature, then feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I got a chance to see that come to its fruition on that Netflix channel, you know what I mean? Um, because to me, that's the element that is is amping up our societal, I, I'll just say angst, you know, that where, where we're at. There's a lot going on in the world, but I feel that all of these things are accumulating and they're making us more and more disconnected with the things that let us get here evolutionarily as a species. And the numbers that I read are something along the lines of, you know, we've been forced to adapt in 30 to 40 years faster than the previous 500. So that's how much of a change that we've had to make adaptations to. And none of them are natural based. That started around the industrial revolution era that were kind of changed dramatically, but I won't go down that road because I don't think we have time. But I think that that message is kind of important for people to appreciate. Um, that answer that question or did I go off on too much of a tangent? I love tangents. And, and, and I actually want to circle back to that and talk about some cultural influences and those sorts of things on movement and, and behaviors. But you also brought up multiple times, you talked about airflow. And so let's dive into the discussion of breathing, because I know it's a big focus of what you've been working on the last couple of years. And it's weird because breathing's become quote unquote cool uh, in our world. Um, and people are talking about it, but I don't know if everybody's saying the right things. What do you see as some of the common or biggest misinterpretations you see in like the current lexicon about breathing? Um, so a, a few things. Number one, I'm breathing and I'm alive. So, I mean, I can't be doing it. I mean, I can't be doing it all wrong. And, and, and I'm not disagreeing with people, but, you know, in my head, I feel in some cases, 25% of the people I see, they're doing a great job of survival breathing, if that they're staying alive. The brain's going to figure out a strategy, but their body has and brain have put into place so many varying layers of compensations and strategies to try to get air in, to then try to push it out, to get air to come back in, to push things out, that they're starting to create more and more imbalances of the system and therefore poor regulation of being able to create the airflow like it's supposed to. Airflow, and I keep saying airflow because I mean breathing is trendy. I mean, whatever we want, whatever words we want to kind of call it, but airflow drives everything in our body. Okay. And I know that sounds like common sense, like, well, of course, it keeps us alive, but it pumps our digestion, it moves our lymphatic fluids, 
It moves our cerebral spinal fluid. It literally moves our brain and uh, central nervous system and brain stem. It pumps our, uh, our internal organs into a direction that is supposed to allow things to take place. It squeezes and, and releases the heart. I mean, I can kind of keep going. So the ability of the system to be able to have balanced airflow management is the number one thing that I work on. I don't care what people are here to see me for because that establishes a baseline of the ability to then move the body and our extremities in the direction that they're supposed to be. So more specifically to your question, things such as, oh, you know, you breathe through your chest too much. You know, we need to get your body to learn to breathe through your belly more. Well, we're supposed to breathe through our chest, but not exclusively. So getting that bad rap of chest breathing is bad is a very inaccurate message. That's where our lungs are. <laughs> so yes, the chest is supposed to expand on the front, but also on the back. And should the belly be able to kind of come out as well too during inhalation? Absolutely it should, but also on the back. So changing the mindset of the, oh, chest breathing is bad because you sit at a desk all day long and you chest breathe and saying you need to learn to belly breathe is not an accurate depiction of what actually is supposed to happen. And it's definitely not an accurate depiction of by automatically equating that to saying that you're doing diaphragmatic breathing that way. So are people doing an imbalance of the way that this chest is expanding? And perhaps maybe they're elevating and lifting their chest to breathe, and that's not ideal. Absolutely. I'm not bashing the concept, but it's the message that's getting, uh, that's getting messed up. Number two, the emphasis is, is almost always on inhalation, meaning if people think about breathing, what are they going to say? Oh, inhale and exhale. They don't say the opposite. So it's about the in first and the concept of, oh, we need to take in more oxygen. Well, actually that's not the case. We need oxygen, but we need CO2 and we need nitrogen and we need all the other stuff that that produces, but we need a balanced amount of it. And we get a balanced amount of it by having the other part of that breathing mechanism, which is called exhalation to take place full through its full excursion. And it's that balance of the inhale and the exhale, I'm doing it horizontally, but doing it ver vertically, the inhale and the exhale that allows the system to maintain this nice balanced pump mechanism. And so if you look up breathing and Google search it, 95% of the pictures will be somebody kind of, you know, in this position. And the emphasis is on that inhalation and taking in more oxygen. But it's it's really about making sure people understand that the body has to go through the fuller excursion of inhale to exhale, being able to feel like they can be in any position. You know, they're in a position doing something in the garden. They can be there and things can expand in all directions pretty evenly. And they don't have to manipulate their shape or their body position to be able to accommodate breath work because that whole system can move and expand in a balanced way. Oh yeah. And also be able to exhale through a fuller exhalation than their brain is used to, which allows that diaphragm to dome up and the abdominals and pelvic floor to come back in for the brain and the brain. You know what I mean? Like this whole mechanism to go through its more optimal uh, movement pattern. And then can they do that in a number of different positions and being able to then work on that breathing excursion in different positions successfully with as little compensation as possible. Um, the third thing too, I think is respect to is like things such as, you know, um, 
like sleep, sleep disorder, breathing, sleep apnea, things like that. And, and, and the number of people that are sleep challenged. Um, and I feel that the message is slowly coming around more and more to people understanding the importance of nasal breathing all day and all night. But I feel that part of the poor balance of breathing strategies that are taking place throughout the daytime and the number of clients and patients that I've seen over the years, over the decades, just to be perfectly clear, that present with imbalanced breathing capabilities. And then therefore it's gonna become that much more exaggerated overnight during sleep, but they're gonna blame something like, oh, my TMJ or my grinding or my apnea or my septum, when it's actually more a matter of like, no, we need to spend time changing the behaviors and changing the current mechanisms your brain and body puts into place to allow you to be able to then override what it currently does to create that change that's not going to feel natural and normal towards to you so that overnight during sleeping you have this more fuller excursion of that breathing mechanism that allows airways to open up allows tongues to be able to position themselves and nasal passageways supposed to be, you don't you know what i mean so that whole mechanism to take place overnight has to be established during the daytime so at nighttime it's able to do it much more effectively and then using whatever tools are necessary to allow that to happen you know, people have a hard time with their nose using nasal strips if needed, being able to kind of work on something to open up that airway by, you know, different types of, of, of appliances that can be used to help to open that up a little bit, not from a standpoint of protecting teeth as much as making sure that that airway can stay open, um, you know, using nasal sprays if we got nasal issues, you know what I mean, things like that that allow them to do it. But all of that culminates into they have to appreciate and understand the power and the influence that making the change has on their ability to be able to have a better degree of, I don't like the word function, uh, capabilities of movement during the daytime, positioning themselves, being able to move at a low level or high level of performance, feeling like their body just has good flow and homeostasis to it, like things work pretty well. There has to be an understanding and appreciation that it's there for them to be able to take the time and effort to put into then making the appropriate changes they knew to retrain the process because it doesn't happen overnight. All right. So there's a bunch of stuff I want to go down rabbit holes with the breathing. I go too deep. So, Stop me periodically. No, no, we're, 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 no, we're going to go even deeper. And then I got a bunch of stuff with breathing. And then you mentioned positionally, like being able to not only be able to do it sitting in a chair or standing up, be able to do it in different positions. But I think we also need to preference all our conversations and discussions on breathing by creating a, a foundation of situationally what you, what the demand is on the body and what the outcome is that you're looking to have. Uh, there's there's a, a slide that I created that when I teach and talk about breathing called the wheel of breathing and say, look, there's I can show you six or seven different breathing tactics depending on what you want the outcome to be. Because the same way I'm going to have you say, lay on the ground and do breathing. If I'm trying to create some more thoracic mobility and create a learning environment, it's not the same breathing you're going to use when you go on your, your five mile run, which is not the same breathing when you're going to put a heavy bar in your back and squat, which is a different breathing than when you go throw a, a medicine ball as fast as you can, which is a different breathing than maybe when I'm trying to create excitation and exaggerate the inhale. So all these different things are, are situational and you can leverage it for so many different things. So I think just saying, quote unquote, what is the correct or proper way to breathe is, is almost an answer you can't give, right? Uh, it's a great, great analogy. And I love how when you mentioned the different scenarios, you kind of built them up, basically. You know what I mean? From the lowest level to the highest degree of intensity where the challenge is going to be that much higher. So the reason I like that is because 
that's where it kind of starts. And it kind of goes back to what I was talking about previously by saying, getting that connection with your body, just exploring it. There's many ways, I'm sure I read this somewhere, there's many ways to breathe as there are grains of sand on the beach. There is no one way. There's not supposed to be one way. I'm looking for being able to create a, establish a baseline, get someone to a place that they then have options available to them. Yes, they can amp it up dramatically to be able to create performance activities, you know, really um, create a powerful diaphragmatic excursion, take that fascial muscle and let's even think about strengthening it. Do you know what I mean? Because it can be along with that pelvic floor mechanism and that abdominal canister control. Let's, 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 let's make power on top of that. But if the system's not in a good starting position to do that, then it's going to do it in an imbalanced way. In the opposite direction, being able to downregulate, getting the body to be able to kind of say, I need to recover. I need to be able to kind of come out of this excited state. I need to be able to not come home and feel so amped to, to come into my house to, for my family. I have to be able to get to a state of deep, all phases of breathing, as well as that deep REM sleep. And I need to be able to kind of get my system to get to that stage. Again, you need, in my mind, a baseline to be able to use that allows you to be able to then move into that direction along that 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 spectrum, that gradient, if you would, of highest performance to highest performance of relaxation and recovery. You know what I mean? So, what are some things that people can do to practice that? You know, number one is um, I want people to be able to 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 have, as I mentioned before, a fuller excursion. Okay. People practicing breath activities are going to be best served more times than not lying down in some position because gravity is going to be functioning on the body differently than it is if they're going to be sitting upright or standing. So lying on their back, lying on their side, being on hands and knees, again, all these are kind of dependent upon the individual that I see, but any of them can work to some degree successfully for people, depending upon, uh, I'm sorry, uh, as long as they take the time to be there for a period of time and, and be present. Number two fuller breaths, meaning being able to kind of feel a nice smooth inhalation and then picturing that at the top of that inhalation that there's this slowing down mechanism that happens and then it transitions to a nice and smooth exhalation. And I tell people the exhalation should be about the same in an ideal balanced position as you do during your inhalation. Most people I work with need to actually focus more on that exhalation. So I might have them actually spend a little more time exhaling a little bit more than they're used to not bearing down, not forcing, not working hard at it, but just being thoughtful with it, being able to take a little longer exhalation and then kind of pausing for a couple seconds, meaning that exhalation goes, again, same idea, it slows down, they pause for a couple seconds, I haven't inhaled, they smoothly inhale, and I tell people, picture a wave. It's kind of rolling in during inhalation and then nice and easy and rolls back out and then kind of tumbles while it's out there. And then being able to feel like they're able to go through that mechanism, excuse me, eight, 10, 12, 15 times with each exhalation feeling like they're able to get a little more air out than they normally would. It'll feel like it's a little bit more each time. And then being able to pause for a little longer period of time. Again, I didn't say hold. I didn't say bear down. I didn't say engage abs. But just being you know, mindful and that, that longer exhalation. Again, lying on their back with their feet up on, on a couch or legs bent, feet flat. Lying on their side, kind of like with their arms reached out a little bit to allow the front and the back to all open up. But again, allowing their, their um, uh, 
their brain to be present in their body to feel the sensations that are happening. Again, like you're exploring an app on your phone. You know what I mean? Kind of feel, sense, see what it's all about. And then as they've gone through that longer excursion, I want to have them feel like, yeah, I feel like I could exhale a comfortable amount of air and my brain feels safe. I'm good. Great. I think I'm going to inhale now because I probably should. Because inhalation is airflow flowing in. Even though the diaphragm actively contracts and we think about that as being the active phase of breathing, it's pressure differentials of the atmosphere outside versus our atmosphere inside. Air should flow in. Sure, the diaphragm contracts to draw it in, but we've become so focused on, oh, inhalation is active and exhalation is passive recoil. It's actually less than that. <laughs> but if you appreciate that mechanism that we just talked about in terms of that flow and that, that nice pause and end exhalation, that allows that mechanism to happen a whole bunch easier. And then from there, yes, we stack on performance breathing. We put them in positions to then maybe engage more um, abdominal uh, uh, wall activity and scapular muscle activity. Then we work on putting them in offset positions and working on it in that position. Does that make sense? So then, then we can build performance on top of that baseline. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So as you're, you're talking about this cueing and really this elegant learning process, I, I, I can't stop thinking about like the Maslow four levels of competence and, and yeah. that, I that I steal and use for movement all the time because it works really elegantly. If we, we start with this unconscious incompetence, like I didn't even know I sucked at breathing until you told me, but now that you told me, I don't know what to do about it. That's the next level of, of conscious incompetence. And then you go through some of these things and go through a session with you and you've created this conscious competence, right? But left to their own devices, something is, it, it's its even tougher, I would think, with breathing because movement, at least when I'm teaching movement, to get them to that reflexive unconscious incompetence where it just happens, I, I think is a little bit easier than when you're talking about the most fundamental thing we do that we're doing 12 to 15,000 times a day. How does that transition in, in, in that automacy sink in on a reflexive level to where it becomes their new behavior? Um, time, patience, and a little bit different for everybody. <laughs> it's a challenge. Like, that's a great question. And to your point, it's, it's part of one of my, um, I'll say challenges as a professional is I want to see everybody, whatever, every two or three weeks, for a long period of time, I want them to learn and understand the body more and more and more. This is not because I need more clients. Trust me, it's not. But I want to see people for the long term to have them grow and learn and understand. And I have regular clients because of that reason. But it's some of the other ones that don't fully uh, appreciate yet some of this pieces because they're, they, their exposure to what they feel is uh, along the lines of what I'm going to do is like, Oh, he gave me some things to kind of work on. He has a little bit of breathing involved and my hip feels better. So that's great. So I'm good. It's kind of like, well, no, you're, you're, you're okay. Do you know what I mean? But I, I want to build on top of that and have them understand more. So to your point, um, I try to provide as many resources as I can. 
you know, I have handouts, I have references, you know, uh, other podcasts, other articles, things like that, that I send to be people in an attempt to try to educate them more and have them have access to things that they can then look into if they so choose to. Number two, I try to make sure that they, they are aware that, you know, one of our challenges is going to be my message is going to be not the same as what you're going to hear when you leave here. And it's not that I'm right and everybody's wrong, but please appreciate that I have a particular plan in mind. And so if we're able to kind of be kind of consistent with seeing you every you know, few weeks to update, to progress, to advance, to further educate, give you things to work on and then build from there, you know, it, it will reinforce all of the things we're working on that much better. But when they get to a point that they feel kind of like, oh, I'm pretty good, I think that's probably all he can do for me. That's where I feel like, wow, I really wish I had you a little bit longer because I think there's so much more that you can, we could go through that would allow you to even be that much more successful. There's like this, at times I'll use this kind of analogy. I'm like, so do you, are you, I'm not, I'll say, I'm not trying to be weird with you, but are you looking to get better with why you're here to heal, to see me? Or are you looking for health? You know, I really want to get people here. And the stuff we'll go through will help you to get here. I want you better, but I see things. Um, I've observed things. Your history suggests to me, you've told me some things that suggest that we can go a little bit further with that. So appreciate that, you know, over time, as we kind of get to this point, if you're interested in continuing to learn more and grow and develop that much more, I'm willing to help guide that process that much more and let them make the decision then from there. So one more on, on the, the learning and the practice of this. If we look at uh, interventions such as like you talked about with sleep, it, look at like things like mouth taping. Is that something that is a springboard that can help accelerate the learning or is that gonna end up being more of a crutch in terms of, of how we actually acquire this reflexive new behavior? That's a great question. Um, a couple of things, number one, because of the society that we are in, in all of its um, stimulus, in all of its trappings, in all of it, uh, all, all the things that it offers, okay, positive or not as positive, there are elements of the things that we've just talked about as it comes to like things such as behavior change or kind of things to be able to create change in the system and the body's ability to be able to adapt to this change that will need to be revisited. It means when people understand things and they're practicing some techniques and activities and they're getting better and better and they get to a point they're like, oh, good, I got a good handle on this now, they will have to revisit it. They will have to continue to uh, retrain the process because of all of these other things in their lives and in their environment, uh, previous injuries, traumas that they've dealt with when they were young. There are so many people that are dealing with various forms of trauma that they're carrying with them their whole life that has put their nervous system into a, an amped state that they're constantly managing that require their ability to be able to uh, revisit the things that we just talked about. So do I use things that allow people to be more successful? Absolutely. Do I consider any of them a crutch? Absolutely not. I consider them tools to be able to use to allow them to be successful, to get them to a point that hopefully we can then begin to wean off it. Guess what? Sometimes we have to come back to it periodically. I'll give you... Great example, because you mentioned mouth taping. Um, 
I've been studying, researching, lecturing on breath-based activities for you know well over 20 years now. And to your point, it is becoming trendy now. I'm so glad to see it's finally getting the attention that that it really deserves. I I've broken my nose a few times. I've had some concussions. I've I've been to you know ENTs. I'm a mess in here. I got a badly closed nasal valve on one side, blah, 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 blah. So I have trained myself through education and understanding and all the things that I talk about all day long to breathe through my nose pretty much exclusively. If I go out to do something active, I have to nasal strip to keep my nasal my nose open. My brain knows how to do it, but I need assistance when I exercise. I don't during the daytime because I'm much more conditioned and I know when I'm not breathing through my nose, like if I sneeze, you know, like I, I'm just so conditioned, I, I, I'm there. I don't like to talk about myself, but just as a teaching opportunity. I tape my mouth at night in the past and then I get away from it for a period of time. Well, guess what? Every now and then I got to go back to it because things have overridden in my body because of this underlying injuries, because of this underlying you know, current anatomical changes that have happened because of where my life is at at that particular time. I'll know it. I wake up that way. I'm like, oh, dry mouth. I'm going to tape the next few nights. And then I'm back on the cycle. You know what I mean? So there's some things kind of like orthotics for shoes. They can help someone get to a place or the right shoes that to get them to a place that, wow, you've done a really great job. You've retrained your body to learn how to get you there much more effectively. You know what? You've earned the right to lose the shoes when you train now, but you needed them for that period of time to get you to that place. Guess what? You're having problems now. That injury's starting to come back. Let's go back to the shoes. So I'm going to bounce around there too much, but I hope that analogy kind of answered your question. Yeah. And, and one last thing on, on the breathing, you mentioned, you know, the patient who says, oh, this guy gave me some breathing exercises and my hip is feeling better. Clients are often amazed when, when they discuss the impact of breathing and how it affects things that they think are completely unrelated. Give us, you know, an example or two of where you've had experiences with your clients and patients where they go like, wow, breathing actually affects that. Um, well, I mean, the, the, the easy ones for me are things that when they're lying on the, I'm kind of pointing over here. So like, there's the table, you know, when they're lying on a table and I'm taking a measurement and I'm moving their hip through, you know, towards flexion or I'm moving an arm or something like that. And then we do an intervention, a breathing activity. And then I show them, holy cow, they're like, geez, that's moving a whole lot easier. Or I do a, you know, pass a straight leg raise and they go from whatever, 50 degrees to 80 degrees. And I, I'm not doing anything different because we've changed and modified that internal pressures and balanced things out in such a way that things are in a better resting position, which includes the nervous system is in a better resting position so that it's not overstimulating certain areas of the body. There's better balance. A more um, uh, upright practical one that people can feel is like people, I mean, people love, you know, the people, a lot of people focus on stretching, which is great. But like if someone does, like a calf stretch, for example. And if they get to like a runner position of, you know, doing a calf stretch, like this type of a position. And I did this with the class this morning, like, great, go to the point, hold, what are you supposed to hold for? 30 seconds, great, hold for 30 seconds. You know, they're kind of sitting there, you know, looking around, you know. But I like, do me a favor, go to the point of your first resistance and then stay there, inhale through your nose. And as you exhale, let your body kind of relax and it'll move. Stay to that next sense of, once you've exhaled, stay there, inhale, and you'll feel that inhalation will actually stretch your calf a little bit. Exhale. And again, the body will be able to move through ranges. 
Same thing with any stretch they do. I'm like, I want to have you hold it for breaths for that reason, because they can appreciate that change in the body's movement. The tissue is um, allowing more movement to occur because you're modifying those internal pressures. And that's a nice way to kind of have them uh, sense it, feel it, and understand it better. And two, it's how I want to have everybody stretch anything anyway. I don't say anybody to talk and hold something for 30 seconds. I say hold for about three full breaths to reinforce that fuller breathing excursion like we talked about. All right. So as much as breathing is task and situation specific, something else that also falls under that category is posture. People say, oh, I need to improve my posture or what is good posture? And they, they think of this static military type stance. Now you've done a lot of deep work with the Postural Restoration Institute, PRI. And, um, explain kind of what posture means to you and when, where, and how it, impact, it impacts health and performance. Thank you. Always a tricky one because the word itself denotes a certain image in people's minds. And, and it's hard at times for me to change that mindset and attitude because people continue to go back to the word because it's so prevalent in society. I won't go into a deep dive here, but I have a webinar on my website. I'm not promoting my website, but it's a webinar I did called the history and misconceptions of posture. And if people really want to, and I'll answer your question, but if people really want to kind of understand some of the historical, some of the um, uh, judgmental, some of the sexist, some of the, the, the ways that posture is used over time and how we've gotten to where we're at now, they might want to give that a listen. They might find it pretty interesting. Posture to me is the ability to position the body in a place that allows there to be balanced breathing to occur where the system is able to um, reduce overstress on structures. So what do I mean by that? We've developed this mindset of straightness, verticality as being ideal because gravity is bad. We have to combat gravity. So we have to prop ourselves up and sit at 90 degree angles. But we're, we're not, there's nothing straight in our body. There's, there's elements of the way that the body has curves and bends and twists. We're a fluid-based system. Everything is about movement of fluids and airflow. So thinking about things from a linear perspective is, is just not an accurate depiction of how we work. So I want to have the body be able to be in a position where things are positioned on top of each other. I want the head kind of stacked on top of the shoulders. I want the shoulders kind of stacked on top of the pelvis. And I want the pelvis stacked on top of the ankles. And I think you can kind of see when I'm in this position, I'm kind of bobbing around on purpose because that bobbing around means that I have room for things to be able to move from. Talked before about kind of starting at a good or a respiratory baseline. It's the same idea. So if I'm in standing, the baseline is being able to kind of have my hips move back and forward, being able to hips be able to turn from left to right, have my neck be able to turn from left to right, have everything move because it's able to move and coil through the whole system, not because it's being straightened, um, overly locked into place, overly tightened and engaged, that if I go to do something, restricts movement through the system because that's not how things are supposed to work. This little bit of a good balanced position or stacked position, whatever you want to call it, then allows for good balanced airflow. My chest and back can open and close. My belly and my posterior back can open and close. My pelvis can expand. The pelvic floor can descend. Now I got 
you know, 22,000 times a day of breathing that we do, whatever, is able to do it in a much more balanced position that allows me to be able to kind of then take a step and turn and create the rotation that my body needs to be able to move most effectively versus thinking about it too muscularly and too stiff that then begins to think about things from a too, uh, too rigid a perspective. So posture for life, sitting at a desk, standing in the store, um, out walking, things like that is this kind of unstable feeling in the brain and wobbly type of a position that allows things to be able to move and to flow most effectively. From there, we can then begin to manipulate pressures with the breath work and with strength stuff that allow the body to then say, from this middle position, now I can do extension to get that bar on my back. But if I'm in this position all the time to begin with, there's no more room for me to do it without compressing things poorly. Now I have the ability to be able to squat and allow my pelvis to roll back into position so I can do a front squat more optimally because I can manage the position of structures moving back to offset this position. Now I can begin to say, I can get on my knees on the ground and be able to garden like I want to and pull and yank because my body's in this good starting position. Because I mean, I mean, gardening is a lot of work. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's lifting, it's performance, but it's also ADLs. It's also those activities of daily living that I want people to appreciate. These, these day-to-day -day adjustments of your posture allow you space to be able to move effectively into different directions. So I got a two-parter here. So the first is, could a safe and somewhat accurate definition of posture be, and what I've kind of just kind of floated in my own head and, and told clients is if I took a snapshot of you doing anything, that snapshot is a posture, whether it be in any of those positions, right? So anything is a posture. And like you said before, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have a label of being good, bad, or indifferent. And you also mentioned, you know, it may be your ability to not just breathe, but absorb and create force out of that static snapshot of life, right? Your best posture is your next posture. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, and, and it's nothing is ever still in our body, right? Cells are always spinning and moving. Fluids are always flowing. If you take your eyes and you stare at something and your eyes aren't moving, guess what? Your eyes are moving the whole time. So you don't need, so nothing is ever still. So for us to take our system on from a, from a practical perspective and think about holding it still to allow things to work like they're supposed to is not a realistic way to allow the system to be not um, overstressed, to not feel threatened because it's feeling too restricted in its ability to do stuff. Let's stick them inside a cubicle as well too. So now it's restrict environmental space on top of, you know what I mean? So we're, we're closing ourselves in more and more with some of these things we're doing and not realizing the longer term implications or why the brain and the body is having problems later in the daytime or at nighttime or overnight because of the day-to-day -day stuff. So yes, to your point, I tell people when you're doing things, I would wanna have you feel like if you're at a standing workstation that you're doing stuff and you're kind of going back and forth that your body can then just nice and easy move from one direction to the other. Just smooth and controlled. I want to have your body feel like it can kind of move forward a little bit, stay there for a few seconds. I'm making believe I'm typing. It can move back a little bit. Just allow it the opportunity to be able to shift weight. If you're sitting, do me a favor periodically, just every, every 20 minutes, lift your head up, look 20 feet down the hallway or out the window and stare for 20, 30 seconds, moving your eyes around. 
you'll feel different. You've kind of unlocked your system. Do me a favor. If you have to sit at a desk every 20 minutes or so, just take one elbow, bring it forward. The other elbow, bring it back. Take a breath or two. Do the same on the opposite side. Great. Take a breath or two. You know, do that a couple times on each side. You just took your body for a walk. Do you know what I mean? There's just, there's things that allow the body to move, uh, opportunity to be able to move, and then moving insides that allow the system to not be quite so rigid, which is where a lot of people are when they come in to see me. So let me make sure I'm, I'm not hearing what you're not saying, um, is that the magic seems to be in the, and this is the irony of this, is that as much as we people think about posture in this static state or that snapshot I referred to, is the magic seems to be in the, the ability to transition from a posture to the next posture. And so I'll give you an example in the world that I deal with is I work a lot with baseball players and a lot of the evaluation is looking at phases of the pitching delivery as an example and they'll say okay well where are they at and how's their body aligned when they get to this phase of the delivery when really the magic is what happened the split second before and the split second after and the strategy that led to that and the strategies that are making those decisions for where the next transition is going to be super duper super duper. that's like great because it's that transition that is moving the body internally at the same time, we're looking at an external transition. There's this constant flow of movement that's rotationally oriented. Everything's rotationally oriented. As I move into this side, I'm gonna be biased into one direction. As I rotate my body back into this direction, transition, thank you, and transition back into this direction, there's this balance of movements that are taking place that are constant internally or externally orienting structures. I'm trying not to say internal rotation and external rotation because then people become too fixed in that plane. Does that make sense? But having things inwardly oriented and then outwardly oriented, there has to be this balance, this relative motion where things are kind of moving independent yet interdependently at that important transition point. All right. So one more thing on, on posture and mistakes that we make is that we always look at it from the musculoskeletal level and they, we try to simplify it to tight this weak that, right? If I'm, if I'm in this slumped, you know, upper cross syndrome as Yonda called it, this kyphotic posture of, of, of that, that it must be, this is tight and this is weak when there's a lot of other factors that play into that, that have almost nothing to do with the musculoskeletal system. I always remember something that, that stuck out in my mind as I read the book, uh, somatics by Thomas Hanna. He talks about a red light posture versus a green light posture, red light being that person who's kind of slunking and kind of shying away from life where the green light posture is a person with their, their sternum stuck out and they're, they're kind of commanding the, the, the room. So talk about where posture goes way beyond tight this and weak that. Wait, okay. Um, <laughs> good book, by the way. Yes. And I thought at the time I read it um, a while ago, um, I thought about it's actually like a black, a black light and a white light because there's so much in between. Do you know what I mean? There's so many other variables that are part of that, that, that spectrum you, you with me versus like we have a tendency to do as a species, which is put things into buckets and then put them into categories and say, okay, you're this or that, um, you know? And so that, that's some of the confusing message for people. So from a standpoint of the, the, the elements that I'm, I, I feel matter most for people along those lines, 
if I have a system that has an inability to be able to move into a direction, I want it to get it to move into that direction. So I'm going to do some assessments that are going to allow me an opportunity to be able to see where they can and can't move as effectively. Okay. That being said, the, the reason I talked so much about breath earlier on is because the internal pressure uh, distribution is what allows the system to allow space to occur, to allow the, the muscles and the tendons and the connective tissue to change their position, to get to a different state. So if I have a measure of someone that can't move their arm up into this position, and I say, okay, I want to have you do a prayer stretch to stretch you there, but I'm not changing what's happening internally, then I'm thinking about things from a purely stretch perspective. Or if I have someone who, you know, I have to mind manual muscle test. I don't, I don't take insurance, but, you know, docs want manual muscle test results. And I kind of manual muscle test them. And I'm thinking about things from muscle perspective. And not that if I move their arm an inch, that it's going to change the way that that outcome happen, that outcome measure happens, then I've lost the ability to be able to create an effective treatment plan. I'm not looking at things from that more uh, multi-systemic perspective. So trying to, I'm trying to stay on topic here if I can. The things that I do with the clients that I work with is I try to introduce as many things as the same time as I possibly can to get as much of the body integrated as possible. I try not to do specific exercises that are going to be, this is my, this is, again, this is my, my population of people that I see that's specific for a muscle group. Even if I'm going to talk to them about saying, let's do this exercise. Oh, do you feel that muscle work? I'm going to be having them, if it's for a hip exercise, I'm going to be having them push into a wall at the same time because, or I'm going to have them pull on something. I'm going to have them hold the weight in offset position. I'm going to have them do something else to facilitate as much activity as I can, because that's going to allow all the things that I, I think you were asking me to be, to be put into play so that the things that are tight can kind of free up a little bit because they have to change their position. I'm going to manipulate their breath a little bit. It might depend. I might be like, okay, you're going to exhale on the way down, inhale on the way up. Great. Do that each time. I'm going to have them, I'm going to have them go a little bit deeper each time. I'm going to have that next set be really slow and deliberate as they do that, which then allows the system to be able to then create the effective um, uh, change because of that longer stimulus into the brain and body that allows them to be able to then again facilitate what I want to facilitate. And at the same time, create an inhibition that I want to be able to create for the outcome. By me doing a measure of some kind on a table or having them lie on their back and whatever, do a straight leg raise or have them be able to, you know, just, just doing some to do a toe, toe, I don't care, something, squat, let's do this activity, let's squat again. Oh my gosh, that's a whole lot easier. In my mind, that's taking that complex topic that we talked about earlier on and saying, we gave a lot of input to the system and we simplified it. Wow, holy cow, you can move a lot easier now in that position. And so that in my mind is really a way that they can, I can measure it if I need to measure it, or I can demonstrate to them the change that some of these activities are going to have on their body. Okay. So uh, I know we're, we're going to start getting up against it with time here, but I'm going to open up a can of worms uh, a little bit and look a little more globally and talking about all of this stuff and the impact of the balance of the autonomic nervous system and what factors we can actually control and how adopting new behaviors like we've been talking about and how that reshapes us both internally and externally. Yeah, bumping up on time with that one. So <laughs> all good. Couple things. Um, the, 
the, the degree of stimulus that our current modern society has to deal with on a daily basis is for a lot of people unsustainable. And, and for a lot of people uh, wreaking a lot of havoc on how their, their brain and their body is responding to said stimulus. We're adapting as best as we possibly can. We're making changes in how we take this input in to develop a tolerance to it. But that doesn't mean that it's favorable. It just means we're adapting and we're developing a tolerance to it. That on the deep level will begin to affect the way that our brain gets the information from our senses to be able to make appropriate changes like it's supposed to, to be able to say, I've got to be more on now and I've got to be more off now, thus autonomics. I got to be able to kind of amp up this side of my sympathetic drive a little bit. I need to be able to kind of ramp down this side of my parasympathetic side of things. And when the system is getting, I'm going to say bombarded, bombarded with the number of stimulus and, and uh, events and activities and schedules and even good stuff, don't get me wrong, good stuff that drives that system into overdrive throughout the daytime um, can't not have a long-term effect on the way the chemical reaction happens in the brain, our, our, our dopamine receptors, the way that we perceive the environment, the way that our, our, our metabolic state of our brain, our, our trophic systems, ergotrophic and tropotrophic systems are able to kind of uh, provide the proper, uh, appropriate uh, changes of the brain chemistry to allow us to be able to adapt and throwing some fancy stuff in there for people to look up if they want to. I wasn't showing off. Um, that then allows us to, uh, not allows us, that then holds us hostage into a more uh, imbalanced state. So now, because I live in a city and I'm outside walking to work every day and I'm listening to this like, you know, crowds and horns honking all the time and clanging construction, all that kind of stuff. I've developed a tolerance to it. I've adapted to it. It means the brain is now on too much. Does that make sense? And so it becomes less able to be able to change that input sensorily to the system to be able to appreciate the, the less threatening noises be able to appreciate uh, 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 softer sounds, quieter input, no input at all. I just used sound as one, one example. So some things from an autonomics perspective that I feel matter a lot. Number one, the things that are occupying someone's brain tremendously, they, wanna, they should really try to revisit and figure out how to make changes. What do I mean by occupy their brain too much? They're at a job they can't stand. They work for a boss or an organization that they're, they're dreading going into work the night before, let alone when they're at work all day long. They're in a, a, an awful relationship where they, they have, you know, whatever, psychological abuse. Um, they're held hostage by um, stimulants. Do you know what I mean? Like they're, they smoke and they're constantly thinking about when they're going to have their next cigarette or you know, they, they drink and they don't have, they're not an alcoholic in their brain, but it's constantly on their mind. You know, oh, I'm looking forward to cocktail this and cocktail that. And you know, so what, what is occupying a lot of space in someone's brain that's not allowing them to free up space for other more favorable things? Whatever needs to be done to try and create changes, those, th that's, that's the big rocks, okay? Number two, being able to appreciate the earlier conversations we have, breathwork activities, being able to understand that taking in our environment and appreciating the natural environment, the sounds, the smells, the, the feel of stuff, 
you know, being on uneven ground, like on a sand or on a trail or on grass versus being on cement whenever possible. Heck, be barefoot while you do it at the same time um, is powerful. Uh, appreciate sounds and smells and scents during the daytime. Deliberately try to visit something like you touch something different, you smell something different and acknowledge it. You hear something different and acknowledge it and you take in a new sight every day. Get your body to do things that allow it to alternate, meaning deliberately move from one side to the other periodically in a slow, smooth, flowy, methodical way. It can be something as simple as standing up and just kind of like shifting the weight to one side this way, slow and easy shifting the body weight to the opposite side, being there for five or 10 seconds, go back, breathe a little bit. It can be doing like a cross body lunge walk. It can be like a retro walk where they cross that midline. It can be turning and for this way, stepping back, turning, you know, just getting rotation, fluid movement, playing with breath at the same time is now lubricating your nervous system. Meaning the nerves are being moved like this and your spinal cord is kind of like being moved like this and your, your cranial nerves, which are your, your, your autonomic center that kind of come out of the cranium and out of the brainstem are like, whoa, holy cow, you're flossing me. Nice job. It's allowing the system to be able to create those varying inputs as well as the sensorial ones that allow the autonomics to be in a more regulated state. All right. So if I can try to put it, okay. well, yeah, yeah, it's been a whole lot. And so if I could try to, to put a bow around all of it and try to tie all the pieces from the beginning of the conversation in, in, in thinking about even those students you were talking about earlier, is that like surface level getting someone better, whether it's on my side on the fitness and performance side or in, on the more clinical side, what you're working on has to go, it is on the surface level is you present the problem, I'm going to give you uh, this remedy for that problem. But next level, what you're talking about is looking at the global compass of the stressors that, that, that you have to encounter throughout your day. And it, we could go down a whole road of like the, the stoic approach of what can you control? What can you not control and understanding the difference, yep. right? Um, and then saying, okay, when you can't control that situation, at least I can provide you tools to manage your state, right? So you can manage your state. So where if you are in that stressful situation that you, you can, you can calm down and get into a more parasympathetic state, or the reality is, is there's also going to be states. And if I work with people in performance, you know, I know the yoga instructor said you should always breathe into your belly and through your nose. But look, if you're getting chased by a 200 pound linebacker with bad intentions, I, I, that's not the, the, the right strategy right there. Yeah. I don't so, care. So is that, was that be a, a pretty good summation of, of kind of next level of, of kind of what you're trying to, to impart? It is absolutely. And, 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 and it goes back to what I was saying before, you know, do you want to get better? You know, your client, do you want to kind of make the team or are you looking for kind of like ultimate outcomes, you know? And so there's, there's always that extra um, bit we can do to improve upon things. And, my extra bit for the people that I see, they typically are on an element of having a problem of some kind, but that doesn't mean it can't be applied to the performance side of things. And one of the challenges I'm, I'm, I'm up against with my side of it is that, um, I keep saying stimulants, do you know what I mean? Because it's, it's, it's the constant stimulants that our brain wants, that society wants our brain to want, that 
people are putting into place to consciously, deliberately distract you and pull your attention away from, I hate to say reality, but reality, you with me? Because it's part of the way that things have gone. And so allowing us, allowing that to happen to us is part of what I'm trying to bring to people's attention is I want to bring you back to not allowing yourself to feel held hostage to all of this. Do I have a schedule I have to stick with? Of course I do. Absolutely. Do I want it to run my life that I don't have the opportunity to be able to do the things that I want to as well? I, I can't allow that to happen to myself because I know what that outcome is going to end up being. And so similarly to the point of, of, of you know, being optimal in anything, in my mind, the more that we get our systems to be able to feel, to sense, to revisit, we can call it whatever we want being mindful, being feeling and being internal, being, I, I don't, meditation has a bad connotation, but being meditative for periods of time to just explore self. I gave some strategies here people could do that are just really easy to do outside or in different environments that don't have to feel quite so meditative if they don't feel like they have that in their, their lexicon for, for uh, what, they, what they're able to do, um, is, is being able to then embrace the fact that um, those things over the long term have powerful outcomes, but they have to respect the process and that it's kind of like eating well. You know, it's not like you have a salad and like, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. I had that salad. <laughs> you know, it's it's got to be part of the process that you're doing a pretty good job eating pretty well all the time so that ultimately in the long run, you start feeling better and better and things are working better. It's the same idea. What can we do to override the trappings and the positive trappings that our current society is 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 um, putting onto us. Wow, we there's there's still a lot of meat on the bone of some of these conversations. So hopefully we're going to have to circle back and, and have another one. But uh, we're up against it with time. So so tell me a little bit about what you got on your agenda uh, and dance card for the next year or so. What's what's going to be new and exciting? What projects you're working on? You know it's. It's going to sound interesting, um, and not what I typically say, but um, less. I have a book that I've been starting to work on that uh, is is a slow process that I'm kind of working on that I'm uh, allow me to be able to kind of get some deeper thoughts uh, out on paper and share. I have a format that I'm following that I'm that I'm looking forward to. Um, I'm not not doing things, but I'm not going out looking for things because I really love the clients that I see. Um, I've been doing this a long, long time. And so I'm looking for more and more time to be able to uh, refine my art with the clients that I see and spend time with you know myself doing some things on my own. I, I work very long, full days. And so you know I'm doing a per I'm doing a I'm, I'm lecturing in April, the Posture Restoration Institute's interdisciplinary integration uh, first annual course is going on. I'm, I'm, I'm lecturing there. I typically lecture at the Perform Better Summits. Um, you know I do small group programs here. I've got a couple small group ones, meaning I have you know I take one or two people into the studio here for a couple of days and do a deep dive into these concepts and do hands-on work and, and assessment models and stuff like that. And that's kind of like on a on a uh, as requested basis. So. You know, I, I don't. I, I've done long for long periods of time, and I know it sounds kind of weird, but I want to kind of like I want to do a little less. So, oh, kudos and 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 thank you for the work that you are doing, and uh, keep us posted on the book project because, like I said, we want to have you back for another conversation as as things evolve and as we both evolve. So, um, thank you for your time, and we want to thank you for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance podcast. Thanks to everybody. Cheers. 
Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on our social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.